That was a nice nap. Now, down to business. I'm a bit worried about the temporal flicker in Sector 13. There's a bicentino refit of the TARDIS to book in. I must just pop over to Centre I-7 and then perhaps a quick holiday. Right, that all seems quite clear. Just three small points. Where am I? Who am I? And who are you? The Rani! And welcome to the Cloister Bell podcast. Um, Rob and I have been trying on multiple occasions to get this uh, podcast out sooner, uh, but despite numerous efforts, it has just been constant delays to the point where we actually thought time and the Rani may be cursed. What we... happened? I d- we no, both I... had excuses every week. <laughs> Well, our excuse, which I think some fans may agree with, was the fact that we're reviewing Time and the Rani, Rob. But we'll get into mm. that in the, uh, <laughs> when we review it. Is the story cursed or not? Anyway, uh, I'm Liam, and uh, that was Rob. How are you doing, Rob? Hello, everyone. Hi. <laughs> You're sounding good. Is everything all right? Oh, fine. Good, good. Good. Uh, been up to much? I've probably been watching a few things since I spoke to you last. I watched the Marvels last night, which is kind of a sequel to Captain Marvel, but it it also incorporates Kamala Khan, who is Miss Marvel from the TV show, and also um, adds Monica Rambeau, or is that the mother? But yeah, there's there's the three characters who have all come together for this one film, um, and I think it kind of bombed at the cinema. But it's kind of what I expected it would be. And it, I thought it was entertaining enough. you not seen it, no? Uh, no, no, no. No. Um, but that just came out on Disney+. Plus. I've also been making my way through Luther. Oh, yes. It, yeah, yeah. And you've seen that, what, years ago? Yes. I mean, not, uh, not every series and not every single episode, but I have seen some of it. And I thought, uh, you know, my memories of it, it was a good series very creepy in places and i think if if i remember rightly i think particularly from the third series onwards what have you thought well it's one of those things i'd never really bothered with i thought man everyone's talking about it Mm. probably not my kind of thing so what i did was me and my wife we watched the netflix film which is actually the last thing you should watch but i thought uh, we don't really care so we'll just watch it in whatever order but after watching that we thought i will go put iPlayer on mm-hmm. and check out the first five series. Um, it starts off good enough. Uh, he's obviously this police officer, detective dude who kind of initially he's fine to kind of kill people or do whatever he wants to an extent. Mm-hmm. In, the, in the first episode, he just lets, lets some guy die and plummet to the, to the ground. He doesn't, doesn't die. Um, he his wife is Susie Costello from Torchwood, but she's having an affair with the Eighth Doctor. But can you blame her? Well, I don't know. That's a thing. Paul McGann or Idris Elba. That's a no-brainer. Bob. <laughs> so you're on the Paul McGann camp. 
Yeah. I mean, they're both very handsome men, I suppose. Yeah, it's uh, it's oh, it's a bit of a difficult one. Yeah. Although I, w- I, w- I was a bit conflicted because as the episodes went on, I thought, oh, I don't like Paul McGann's character that well. Mm. But then I did. So <laughs> all is redeemed. All right. Okay. Good. 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 Um, I haven't really been watching uh, much television. I've been reading. Um, I've been going through a bit of a Mario Puzo binge. Uh, he wrote the Godfather novel. And I bought that years ago. And when I mean years ago, I'm talking about when I was 14 or 15. Um, but someone nicked it. So it was one of those things where it was... Like, well, like well, someone broke in. <laughs> no, no, someone didn't just... <laughs> yeah, someone broke into my house and just stole my copy of The Godfather. No, no, someone I knew, but uh, I couldn't get it back. But anyway, so it was one of those things where I was like, oh, well, that's a bit annoying. Well, I'll have to buy it again and read it. Anyway, it's taken until now for me to actually buy the buy the book again. Uh, so I've finished reading it, and I think as it, you know, it's it's a good it's a good decent read. Um, but I think that's definitely one of those rare occasions where the film is much better than the book. Um, I love the Godfather films, but the Godfather novel itself is. Uh, I mean, it's as I say, it's it's good, but there's parts of it where it just goes on the. It, there's some aspects of it where the fact it goes into much more detail and characters come back and you follow their sort of journey, which is really interesting. But there's some parts of the the novel where you're reading and just going, "What that? What? It's so random." Um, is this like an original novel, or is it a mm-hmm. novelization of the film? No, no, it's original novel. So you had the book first, which came out in 1969, I think. Okay. And then the and then the Godfather film, the first one, came out in 1972. Oh. Uh, Mario Puzo actually co-wrote the script. Um, so, and yeah, just the the, the film is is much better, but the, it's a decent read. But uh, but having read the Godfather, I then read the Sicilian, which is set in the part of the novel where Michael Corleone is hiding in Sicily. Um, and this was published decades later. Uh, this was published in the early 80s. And I really enjoyed that as a much, much better book. Um, and if anyone's familiar with the, God- with the Godfather films, this is like nothing that is contained within the films. It's it's completely original. I definitely recommend it. Uh, I really, really enjoyed it. Um, that's based it's 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 a fiction but it is based on real life mafia events that took place in sicily in the 1940s and the 1950s um interesting okay it's i definitely recommend the sicilian i think that's a it's a cracking good novel uh it's probably one of my favorites actually now i'll definitely be rereading it at some point and then i've just finished reading the last don which was a book he published in the mid 90s which again, that was good, and that was about that. Looks, it's got nothing to do with the the, the Godfather stories at all. But you've got this mafia family, um, and it's fo- following the, the Don's attempts of trying to get the next generation legitimized by through the gambling industry, but also the film and entertainment industry as well. And there's lots of twists and turns. It's quite a it's quite a complicated plot, but you're able. But the way that uh, he he writes it, you you are able to um, follow it quite through uh, quite easily. So I recommend that. So I've enjoyed. So that. the Sicilian does that does that directly tie in with the first book, or does it have connections to 
the film ad- adaptation? Uh, no connection to the films. Because um, I know, wasn't isn't there a sequel to like The Shining? And Stephen King wrote that as ambiguously tied to both the book and the film. Um, that rings a bell. I'm not entirely sure. I'm not really clued up with it's not Stephen an, King. Just because you said he he had something to do with the screenplay, I was wondering if there was any connections there. Oh, right, I see. No, so um, the only thing. So if you read the the Godfather novel, there there are there are parts of it where you you're reading it and go that is pretty much lifted out of the novel and put into the film. But the film um, strips the novel down and just focuses up really on the family dynamic. There's parts of the novel where you're following... Um, oh, I've forgotten the character's name now. But he's the sort of Frank Sinatra type character, the singer. He's in the film. Um, he appears at the beginning of the film as um, uh, at the wedding. And he asks uh, the Godfather a favour to get him into this film and uh, the producer won't won't play ball. So that's the reason why the horse's head appears in his bed as a means of get this guy in the film. Um, and that's pretty much it. Whereas in the novel, uh, he later comes up and you have this whole storyline about um, how him getting into the film uh, improved his uh, career. He he won an Oscar, but then he becomes a film producer in his own right. You you follow this full storyline, which is not in the film at all. The Sicilian, what that does is because in the in the novel and in the film, after Michael Corleone uh, shoots the Turk and the corrupted uh, police officer, and then has to go hiding in Sicily. He's there for a while. He gets married. Uh, there's an attempted hit on him, but results in his wife being killed. Uh, and then he then and then the Godfather in America makes these sort of deals in order for Michael to come back uh, to uh, back to America safely. Um, what the Sicilian does is it focuses on that the back end of Michael Colleone's. Um, so it it follows his bit after after his wife. Uh, was murdered but before he got to america which is not in the novel and not in the film it's 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 very much its own thing all right okay but yeah i've uh been really enjoying that so i was because uh, he wrote quite a few novels and i was going to go down this mario puzo binge and just like pretty much read all of them but i thought no i'll take a bit of a break so i've just started reading uh this book called the the, the social life of coffee um so it's written by an american historian but um He's looking at how I've only I'm only in sort of the first two chapters, but it's the emergence of the British coffee house um, in the 17th century. So, you know, so he's looking at why it became a thing, what that says about the culture of Britain at the time. And I dare say later on, he'll he'll talk about obviously he'll go more in depth into the coffee houses and how this formed Lloyd's insurance and da, 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 da. But I've started reading that. So far, so good. I'm enjoying it. Oh, that's cool. You been at the cinema at all? No, sadly not. I, um, I wanted to um, go to the cinema a few times. Just, I think there was one or two films I definitely wanted to see, and then, and then I was just thinking of just going to the the, the, the cinema randomly just for see if there's anything that just took my fancy. But um, I haven't had the time really. How about you? Nah, no, I haven't really been out. <laughs> Yeah. 
lots of stuff mm. to do, um, like with work and other stuff that I have to, to sort out. But mm. um, yeah, uh, it's been great that I've had uh, I've I've been able to find time to, to to read. So that's been the main thing. So been happy with that. Yeah, I find it hard when I find the time to read. I'm usually too tired. Mm. Just because I've been up early for work. <laughs> hate fa- hate falling asleep reading, even when I'm like fully engrossed, and then I just nod off. Yeah, there's there is a thing because I've always I've got I've got the thing where I've got to I've got to finish a chapter, and you oh, go you know yeah you know I've had these times where I've had that mentality like I need to get through this chapter, mm. and I've been so tired and I've got to the end, and I realised I've been reading it but not taking it in. Mm-hmm. My God's sakes! <laughs> so I'm like flicking back and I have to read it again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is a thing, um, and then. Going right, okay. Well, I'm falling asleep. I'm not really taking this in, and then just trying to find a sensible bit to end. Yeah, like when there's a oh, there's a paragraph. Why is this paragraph going on for two pages? You oh. know, just stuff like that. But anyway, and I hate it when you're nearly at the end of the book and you got that. You just want to get to that end line. Mm. So you're really like plowing through it really fast. I don't know. It feels like a race to me. <laughs> uh so I guess that's it for the catch-ups. Mm-hmm. Um, I was thinking, you know, we never really use the cloister bell in the podcast. It doesn't have a purpose. What the hell's up with the name of the podcast? And so I was thinking, how about every episode, mm-hmm. if we can unanimously agree that a story is good, the bell will toll. You know what? I really like that idea. Why have we never thought of that? It's one of those ideas, Rob. It's a really good idea. I like it. It's one of those. Why didn't we think of it before? Yeah, yeah, I like it. Yeah, it's good. No, that can be that can be our thing. Will mm. the bell toll for this story? Yeah. Yes, I like it. Right. Okay. Definitely. Nice and simple. Mm-hmm. Um. So will it? Em- will that? I really like that idea, Rob. Will that idea emerge during this podcast? Time will tell. Yes. <laughs> So very well could, uh, yeah, it, it could actually. So, uh, the story that we're reviewing now is is Time and the Rani. Um, I thought it would be a good time to review it, uh, especially really because Mel has recently returned into the series, uh, in the episode The Giggle, which was a regeneration story. It's not the first time that Mel has appeared in a regeneration story. It seemed a no-brainer. Let's look at Time and the Rani. So, uh, oh, like, so, Terror of the Vervoids mm. isn't her first story because that's a flash forward. Yeah, this is set after. <laughs> no, yes, it's it's almost like the they started on something clever, like River Song. Mm. Like this is a future companion, and the Sixth Doctor catches up with her at a point after terror of the vervoids mm-hmm. and then he just goes on with her like and then he dies yeah it's it's, uh, it's almost like they had this interesting thing to to do mm. with a character this interesting dynamic and then they just forgot about it yes um, she never has an introduction no no she doesn't she is Mel is probably the worst introduced companion. Um, that isn't anything to say against Terror of the Vervoids, because, well, it's not that she has a... Well, yeah, it's a bit of a funny one, really, because she, as you say, Rob, she's introduced in um, 
towards the end of Colin, what would turn out to be Colin Baker's final story. Um, and I actually think, you know, okay, right, uh, this is a companion that the Doctor will meet at some point in the future. I really like Mel in that story. I think she's great. And I think Bonnie Langford plays her incredibly well. Then, What was her scream count in Vervides? Was it just the one? Uh, two, I think. Because I think she screams at the the first cliffhanger with the, the yeah. guy being electrocuted. Mm-hmm. Then later on, she when um, when uh, she's in the, the, the duct and the vervoid comes along and screams and the doctor goes, The Vionesium Mel! Um, I can't remember her screaming anywhere else in that story. Yeah. So I think it's twice. That's not much. No, it's not much. They sure as hell make up for it in time and their time on the Rani, though. I lost count yeah. how many times she screams in this story. Even in a single shot. <laughs> it's two, three or four times. Oh, it's nuts. Anyway, we'll, we'll get on to that because there is a lot to talk about, Mel. There's a lot to talk about in Time and the Rani. So the plot is... Exiled Time Lady the Rani has set up base on Lucertia, subjugating its scaly humanoid inhabitants with the help of her bat-like servants, the Tetraps. She, hij- she hijacks the TARDIS in, f- in flight triggering a regeneration for the Doctor. Meanwhile, Mel befriends the Lucertians. The Rani gives the Doctor an amnesia drug and disguises herself as Mel in the hope that he'll assist her in her latest scheme. She's kidnapped various geniuses, including Einstein, to feed into a cerebral mass which, combined with the explosion of an asteroid composed of strange matter, will enable her to convert Lucertia into a time manipulator. This would give the Rani control over events anywhere in the cosmos. See, that sounds quite complex, almost like they'd put thought into this. <laughs> yes, it does. Cast and crew, uh, the Doctor, Sylvester McCoy, Melanie, Bonnie Langford, the Rani, Kate O'Mara, Bayus, Donald Pickering, Faroon, Wenda Ventham, Icona, Mark Greenstreet, Saan, Karen Clegg, Urak, Richard Gauntlet, Lanisha, John Siegel, and special voices were provided by Peter Tudnam and Jackie Webb. Special voices? Yeah, you know, the, the voices oh, of the I brain the and ones, yeah. the, the countdown okay, and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Um, the writers were Pip and Jane Baker. The director was Andrew Morgan. The incidental music was by Kef McCulloch. The designer was Jeff Powell. The script editor was Andrew Cartmel. And the producer was John Nathan Turner. Um... There's a there's a bit of a background to talk about in relation to Time and the Rani, but first things first, let's let's talk about how the the episode begins. Um, something which is quite um, frequent in 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 modern Doctor Who, but was very rare in classic Doctor Who, is we begin with a pre-title sequence, and this is the first use of CGI in Doctor Who. So this was a story that was broadcast in late 1987. CGI was really starting to become more of a thing and and here we have its first use and uh, I remember as a kid when I first watched this story which was it was released on VHS back in 1995 so that would have been around about the first time I saw this story oh so yeah what was your thoughts of it then I loved it you loved it that CGI the TARDIS yeah I mean I I I wasn't really registering it with CGI I just loved the sequence you've got the TARDIS uh, just rapidly flying through space being hit by all these colorful lasers um i love the sound effects um the, the tardis is just being battered it's force landed uh, on this on this planet 
Um, it doesn't land usually. It, there's a huge rainbow <laughs> that sort of like transographies, yeah. and and then the TARDIS appears at the end of the rainbow, um, and then uh, the TARDIS doors open. We're inside the TARDIS. Um, we have the Rani coming in, going, "Leave the girl. It's the man I want," which is a classic line. Um, <laughs> And I'm sure many people have quoted it. There's quite a few lines in this. Yes, there is. Um, And then we have this big, lumbering, hairy creature. We don't see all of it. Turns over the Doctor, and his face is all this colourful mass, and it starts to merge into the appearance of Sylvester McCoy. And then we crash Mm. into the new title sequence. By which time Mm. I'd seen several McCoy stories, but, I mean, I thought this was great. I thought this was exciting. Um, this is a, a regeneration which has come in for a lot of criticism. You know, it was criticised at the time. It's been criticised since. What are your thoughts on it, Rob? I don't think it was necessary. Um, I think they could have just started off with a new Doctor. Mm. Or, you know, mention the regeneration, but don't. we didn't necessarily need to have it on screen. It wasn't, it wasn't the strength of the episode. Mm. Mm. I don't know. Yeah, I think at the time uh, when I was watching it back when I was a kid, I thought it was very visually impressive, and I thought that's probably what I was um, latching onto. I agree with that. Um, it's a bit of a funny one. I think. Um, I think, given at the, t- I think at the time that this was made, I don't think it would have crossed anyone's mind not to have a regeneration. I think it was taken for granted that it needed to happen. Keeping in mind that this was originally a story written with Colin Baker in mind. So the background, for those that don't know, is that this was a very troubled period in in Doctor Who's history in terms of the production and in terms of public perception and so on. So Colin Baker had been cast as the Doctor following Peter Davison's uh, leaving of the show. And... During the course of Colin Baker's first season of Doctor Who being broadcast, a decision had been made by the upper echelons of the BBC that essentially that they thought, we don't like Doctor Who, it's a big stinking pile of crap, we're going to cancel it. Um, The result of this was that there was a massive public backlash. And so the BBC and uh, those that made the decision were forced to changed their mind and it was like oh we weren't we didn't mean cancel it we meant hiatus so the show was off the air for 18 months um it came back with the story which was the trial of a time lord but the rev- the viewing figures had plummeted they were okay but they they weren't great so the people that had attempted to cancel the show thought well we need to do something and the decision that they made was, we will sack Colin Baker and force a new casting and maybe that will do something for the show. Um, but it wasn't great. John Nathan Turner, who'd been producing the show since the back end of 1979, had been wanting to leave for quite a while. He actually wanted the Five Doctors, the 20th anniversary special, to be his last Doctor Who story. Um, But for all sorts of reasons, he was forced to remain as producer. By this time, he desperately wanted out and he wanted to produce other things. He had been told, look, 
okay, you can move on, but the last thing that you need to do is fire Colin Baker. Jonathan Turner didn't really want to do it, but okay, so he did. So he sacked Colin Baker. Colin Baker was obviously uh, not very happy with this. And uh, Was he under contract or something? Well, the way that it worked out was he had been contracted initially, I think, for three years. Um, but the way that um, Jonathan Powell, who was one of the, the high, uh, I think he was head of drama at the BBC, he, he had actually argued that uh, every doc, three years was enough. And Colin Baker had served his three years. Jonathan Turner said, no, he hasn't. He's done two seasons. The third one wasn't really produced. And he went, no, 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 that still counts. Um, Colin Baker went to have a conversation with Jonathan Powell and said, look, um, if you want me to go, I'll go. But give me the whole of the next season and I will go at the end of it. I will do the regeneration, but only at the end of the season. Um, Jonathan Powell had apparently said, okay, we'll think about it, but we'll get back in contact with you and we'll have another meeting. That other meeting didn't happen. So Colin Baker was forced out of the show. Um, there was some conversation had of maybe we can convince Colin Baker to come back for the first story of the next season, which would have been Time and the Rani, but understandably Colin Baker refused to do that. So Time and the Rani had to be rewritten. Um, John Nathan Turner had um, went on holiday thinking, right, okay, well, that's me done with Doctor Who. But uh, when he came back from his holiday, he was told, uh, no, you're still going to be producer of Doctor Who. He wasn't happy with this, but it is what it is. He was a BBC staff producer, so he was under contract. And he had three months to form this new season of Doctor Who. So... There was a mad dash to start the ball, start the ball rolling. Um, so he got Pip and Jane Baker in. He knew that they would write a script and they would do it very quickly. So at least that that you know he could have at least one story ready to go into production while he's planning the rest of the season. So it was all bit of sort of like mad. You get a new script editor in Andrew Cartmel, who's then brought in. Um, by which time, time of the Ronnie is pretty much in situ. So that's sort of like the background. There's a heck of a lot going on. Um, so Time on the Rani was pretty much a, a last-minute thing. This, it wasn't planned. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a bit of a, f you know, it's a bit of a funny one. No one was given enough time to really plan this thing. Um, and I think in some respects it shows. But during the Colin Baker era, they had introduced this new character, the Rani. Um, what do you think of that character, Rob? Well, she's a bit of a doppelganger for the Doctor and the Master, mm. almost. Uh, maybe a bit of a proxy for the Master, but nev nevertheless, uh, I like the idea of the character. Kate O'Mara um, was a brilliant actress. Mm. She had um, very charismatic and... Um, yeah, so Mark of the Ronnie was, um, yeah, one of my favourites mm -hmm. of, of the Colin Bakers. Um, regardless of like the story and stuff, I do like our performance in this. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I really like the the character of of the Ronnie. I think as you 
I sort of agree, Rob. She's sort of like this halfway house between the Doctor and the Master in some respects. You know, she's this brilliant scientist, but... Yeah, to the extent where we even had Ainley in Mark of the Rani. Mm. Um, it, it kind of resented the fact that the Rani's there and she's got her own TARDIS and he doesn't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think Antonio um, wasn't particularly happy with that. But nonetheless... I think he puts in a great performance in that story, and I, I re- like you, Rob. I really like Mark of the Ronnie. I think it's a, I think it's a good story. One of the things that really works is the fact that you have this character, the Ronnie, and it is wonderfully written and wonderfully performed. She's basically mocking the rivalry between uh, the Doctor and the Master, but it's done in a way which it, it doesn't feel like it's uh, uh, winking at the audience and taking you out of it. It it just seems like a good observation on her on her part. It's really well done. So she's mm. humorous. But what makes her a villain is that she's a scientist who's completely amoral. Um, so she's doing these scientific experiments, which has the which has these unfortunate uh, side effects. But she's not bothered about that. And that mm. that's what makes her a char- an interesting character. She's not evil for the sake of it. Um, yeah. It kind of makes her a bit of a polar opposite to the Doctor, mm-hmm. more so than the Master. Yeah. So I think she's a, a an interesting character, and to bring to bring her back, I think was a, was a good idea. Um, I think the way in which that is handled isn't particularly effective. I think you you introduce this really good character, Remarka the Rani, and then Time of the Rani. Um, I think it's it's diluted somewhat, and, and as you say, Rob, that's got nothing to do with Kate O'Mara's performance. She she plays it incredibly well. She's great. Um, I just think it comes into the, the way that it's written. I think one of the issues that this story has for me, and this is only like me now talking about it as a kid, I thought it was fun. You know, uh, this element of it I really liked, but I, I think it's too humorous. Hmm. Obviously, I don't mind humour in, in Doctor Who, but I think it has to be... I think the balance has to be there. And I think the humour takes over to the point where it's it's too Like, like intentional humour? Oh, yeah, yeah. Would you say that? Where would you say that was placed? Um, <laughs> two things. I think the puns that they give the Doctor. Um, so... Uh, I love his one-liners in this. I've got to say, I do enjoy so them much. as well. Um Really makes me smile. Yeah, same. Uh, there was there was one thing, Rob. I'll, we'll come on to it later on. But there was one line in, in in this which, as a kid, I thought was absolutely hysterical. It had me laughing my head <laughs> off. Maybe, and... maybe we're thinking of the same one. There's a couple that I'd rewound on my watch on my rewatch. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We'll get to those. Which I think you know. I think um, if we had this doctor just doing these one-liners on on its own within within the context of the story, it's fine. I think it's that coupled with the fact that you have the Rani pretending to be Mel. Yeah. It. Uh, I think that's a bit much. I, now I'm not saying I'm a stupid person, but it gets a bit. If you if you if you don't think about it too much and you're just watching it casually, it can kind of confuse you a bit. Going from scene to scene with two Mel's. Yeah, I know what you mean, and in fact, that was deli- it was deliberately structured that way, where you have, because I think if if you were just sort of like just watching it, not you know just watching it as in a in a relaxed fashion, yeah, you could go. This show's really badly edited. Yeah. 
Like you, you end one scene with an image of supposedly male, and then you cut to a completely different location with an image of supposedly male. And then, and then we go from a male to a hologram male. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so no, no, I get that, Rob. It's um, it could potentially be confusing if if you know if you, if you, if you weren't paying attention, I suppose you just go, what the hell's going on? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I literally had one or two moments like that. Like, wait, hang on. Oh, that was the wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, but one thing, obviously, we've got to talk about is uh, this is Sylvester McCoy's first uh, Doctor Who story. Um, so just two questions. Um, I think I know the answer to the first one, but is what do you think of Sylvester McCoy as the Doctor? And the second one, Rob, is what do you think of this as an introduction to not only him as the Doctor, but as an introduction to a new Doctor in general? I think it's a poor introduction. His initial scenes with the Ronnie, um, obviously he's in Colin Baker's outfit, Mm -hmm. which is a bit distracting. And he's also kind of, well, he doesn't quite know who he is. He's getting a lot of his phrases muddled up, mm-hmm. uh, which which I guess shows that he's having a bit of an identity crisis, um, as usual. Um, I think there's moments that show that he's starting to get the character, but uh, he's not quite there. Mm. Um, so for me, it's a bit of a poor introdu- introduction. For the doctor hmm. yeah i agree with that and i think you know i mean sylvester mccoy doesn't give a bad performance he's a good actor and i think he was a tremendous casting as the doctor and i think as this season would go on and obviously with his second and third season he's he's a lot better because what he's able to do is bring him you know bring in a really good performance but know what he wants to do with the character whereas the fact that there was uh, this whole production was rushed as I was saying before no one's really given them you know they just have to go in and do it they're not they haven't really given themselves time to think and I think that includes Sylvester McCoy I think Jonathan Turner was astute enough to go this guy can be really good as the doctor so I'm going to cast him but because they were basically right okay you're cast right we just need to go in and make this damn thing um yeah so they were literally just cleaning the silver paint off his face and shoving him straight on set. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, uh, so it's insane. So Sylvester McCoy doesn't give a, a bad performance in this. And actually, there are moments in this where I think he's really, really good. And it sort of hints, and obviously we, we know this with hindsight, but it hints at what he will later do with the role. But there are certain moments where you're going, what, what's going on here? So um, I like the fact that uh, as soon as he wakes up, uh, yeah, okay, there's a little bit of confusion, but he seems to be immediately aware of his surroundings and, and what's going on, which I really like. So, you know, that whole thing when he sits up, ah, that was a nice nap, right down to business, and he's talking about the TARDIS, and just, just three small points. Where am I? Who am I? And who are you? The Rani! I like that. It, it flows quite fast. Like, I don't know um, if you could have played it differently, but... I don't know. Maybe he's a bit hasty to get those get that dialogue out. It doesn't really come across as as natural. That convincing. Yeah. 
I know what you mean, uh, and there probably would have been a, a different way of, of doing it. But nonetheless, there's something about it that I like. It, I think it's because it's sort of like fresh and just, it's great. But then it's immediately followed by him doing sort of pratfalls, which mm. I'm not, which I'm not keen on. Um, mm. But then that's immediately followed by the fact that, you know, the doctor's going, <laughs> going on that he will smash up the Rani's equipment, <laughs> which I like. And then we have, um, and then we have, again, it's it's not fully revealed. We see the tetraps fully later on, but we have this, you know, this big hairy beast thing coming in, and uh, who who then renders the doctor unconscious. Um, so there's there's certain elements of this which I think work, but then they're immediately followed by something which I don't think does work. Immediately followed by something that does. So there's a lot of push and pull. Uh, I think uh, initially in this. Um, so yeah, I don't think it's a particularly strong introduction. Um, I think you could, if you were being fair, you could go, well, I can understand that knowing, you know, something about the difficulties of the production, as I said before, and it was, it, it was rushed, but even then the, there's, there's times of it where I just go, mm, but surely you could have yeah. done something a little bit more stronger and, I don't know. A bit yeah, as, as a viewer, it's a, bit, a little bit hard to excuse. Yes. So, hmm. um, so I think it's the, I think it's those things where you're seeing parts of this and you're going, I can see the potential of what the show can be, but as a as a means of introducing this, it it does, you know. So you've you know the special effects have improved. We seem to be entering a new era, as I said, with the CGI uh, at the beginning of the, the, the story and with the title sequence. But we also have, I think, some really, really good special effects within the story. Um, you know, you got the bubble traps, uh, bu- the bubble traps, um, which I think are really, really good. Sorry, you're laughing. Absolutely Rob. bonkers. But yeah, they're brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, but bonkers. But I think that the way that they the rendered is is really good. So you have these bits of trip wire, and if you trip the wire, you're suddenly encased in this 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 bubble, which will then sort of fling you around the landscape, and then and then then explode, and then you die. Yeah, it's absolutely bonkers. But visually, how how they they made that look with the, with the, with a mixture of camera work, uh, practical effects, and video effects. Mm. I mean that. Uh, I still think that looks good now, as a yeah. Like visually, you understand what's going on. Mm. I think um, I think that's really good. The way that they, the way that they make the recursion sky pink. I mean, sometimes it doesn't quite like um, Sylvester McCoy's hat seems to turn pink in with the sky, so it's not you know a hundred percent. But on the whole, yeah, it's, it's a lot more subtle. It's more a lot so than like survival. Yeah, funny when enough, it is. I, sky I, color, yeah. yeah, which is two years later. But I think the way that they changed... And a lot the... less subtle than, like... Um... Mind warp. Yeah. <laughs> God. <laughs> yeah, which was very, very garish. And that was only the year before. Here, it's it's much more subtle and, and it works. And you've got some fantastic models with um, with the Rani's um, headquarters and the rockets yeah. and the meteorite. I mean... They're really, really impressive um, visual yeah, effects like the, and model the, the work. The Tetrap headquarters, mm. you, you don't quite appreciate the extent of it until you see the model shot 
in part four. Yeah. With the rocket, yeah. Mm. So, I mean, so I think visually, and uh, the story is, I think, really good. Um, the designer, Jeff Powell, he was very respected. I'm sure he won BAFTAs for his design work. Not in this story, I mean, in other things. <laughs> but they have but they have, uh, they have, have Jeff Powell uh, designing the this BAFTA story. The BAFTA winning time in the rock. <laughs> oh, can you imagine, if only. But... Um, I think he does a really good job uh, with his design, with the sets and so on. What do you think? Um, oh, yeah, definitely. We have these, well, the Ronnie's headquarters is a functional functioning set. Mm. We have, um, what would you call them? These, these um, little booths for Einstein and company. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and then we seem to have like... Uh, a mechanical system delivering stuff at the end. We have where the back creatures are. We have this kind of lava flow of blood stuff mm. coming down. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's a very functional set that exists, and you can see the scope of it. So, um, and you can kind of get your bearings on where most things are. The, the, typical quote quarry kind of setting outside um actually works well for the setting yeah i agree with that what was interesting was uh pip and jane baker who wrote the story they had this idea and it's 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 here in the uh with the way that it's depicted but they had it that the locutions were um uh, aliens who didn't really do a lot of physical work and they were all about leisure and nothing else and so they so they depicted this world as being uh, green and vervent so <laughs> so when they saw it's just like oh this story's been set in, a, set in a quarry they thought well that kind of takes away from from what we it's as writers have big set. tropical paradise they had planned yeah, yeah, yeah. it sounds all right on paper <laughs> so, so, but actually build that <laughs> but actually i think uh i mean i can see where they're coming from in the characterization of the locutions but I think having this set in a quarry, given the story and what the Rani's about and what she's done, I think actually makes sense. You see the Lucertians, uh, who who've been very easily subdued because, you know, they're they're simple pleasure seekers, really. Uh, great song by Maloko, but uh, they're, they're they're these pleasure seekers, and just hang out in these weird orgy houses <laughs> with, with that piece of music. Do 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 do. Actually, talking of which, I'm probably one of the few people, apart from from apart from that one bit of the score, which does irritate the hell out of me. I think I'm one of the few people who actually likes the score of the story. I think Kev McCulloch. Uh, no, I love it. Oh, great! Because uh, last year, uh, Silver Screen released the um, the soundtrack to this, and I, I noticed some people online going, "Who the hell's going to buy this?" It'd be like me. I'm going to well, buy no, it. No, I'll listen to it. It, it. It's it's quite brave and mm. in its own simple way, you think, kind of think, oh, I could do this with a keyboard. <laughs> <laughs> it's that simple and bad, but it's not bad. It's good. No, no, it's not bad. I, I, I do. I'm not being ironic or saying, you know, or anything like that. I I've always loved the score. When this was first uh, released on DVD, I was so disappointed it didn't come with an isolated uh, oh, man, soundtrack yeah. score. But anyway, now we now we can listen to it. It's all in all its glory. Yeah. I genuinely Insert like it. Insert some now, if you have it. 
Uh, yeah, or am I just making it. extra work for you? Just pretend you don't own it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'll insert something in. It's fine. But I, I generally really like the score thing. I know Kef McCulloch has, is coming for some criticism from some fans. Um, I like it. I do. Maybe not my. May not be my favorite, but I do love his uh, uh, version of the Doctor Who theme. I like the score that he provides here in Paradise Towers, Remembrance of the Daleks. Um, I wasn't. I think he does the score for Battlefield, which I'm not keen on. But on the whole, you know, I do, I do think he does a good job. Um, and so anyway, going back. Of course, anyway. these, there's a few of these little audio cues in this story mm. that would crop up in subsequent stories as well. So it's like they've kind of nailed the format, um, mm. from, from the start. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, sorry, Rob. So going back to the the point before I went on the tangent of the the soundtrack. But so these uh, the cushions are, are pleasure seekers. Um, but I think it actually makes sense that we don't see this vervent landscape because the Rani's come along and turned them into a slave force and has made this headquarters and built the, the, the rocket and everything that will subsequently destroy them. I actually think, and I don't think it takes a massive leap of the imagination, but I actually think uh, selling the story in that quarry makes sense. I don't think it fully contradicts what Pip and Jane Baker were wanting to do with the Lucertians. Were there tetraps bat people natives no uh good part i don't think they were okay but uh, talking of the tetraps what do you think of them uh not good if the camera lingers on them for too long oh, are the, 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 they're all right in the dark in the, <laughs> in the basement in the cellar all right um, when you can't well, see until you get clo- l- very lit up close-ups of them jabbing their tongue out um, hmm. I don't know. The they've obviously got eyes on eyes and eyes by their ears, eye in the back of their head, which constantly looks back and forward. Um, I don't know. For me, it's just not very convincing. 
All right, okay. I th- I disagree. Not wholly. Um, I think on the whole, I, I do I do really like uh, the Tetraps. Um, and I do think that, that they're a good design. And I think they're realised. And I think they look quite good. But I will agree with you, Rob. There are a couple of shots where um, they do big close-ups. And you can see when the tongue comes out. And it does look... It looks like plastic. Um, yeah. And I think that's unfortunate. But, you know, when you pull back a little bit... and. You, I, I do think they look good. I think they're, I think they're a good design, and I do think they're mm. iconic. Would the story have functioned just as well without them? And what purpose did it have? That's true. Um, yeah, it, I, yeah, probably actually. Yeah. Um, it's like she's already using the locations as uh, as kind of slaves and servants. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, why has she brought some bats too? <laughs> <laughs> good question and and the the they're a little bit too um too autonomous and too intelligent because they'll be questioning her as well mm. which she doesn't quite like yeah so why are they even around <laughs> <laughs> yeah true actually yeah um yeah, as good as I like them. Yeah, maybe they don't service the, <laughs> maybe they don't service the story particularly well. Yeah, yeah. Um, but they're there. Yeah, talking of things that they are, that that is very much there um, is uh, is Mel. So when I was uh, watching watching this with the production subtitles, um, it was talking about Mel and the audience reaction, um, which you know the bbc researched and provided reports on this and apparently the audience reaction to her was not good her appreciation index for this story was 41 which was down six percentage points on the previous year um and there was questions that the character of mel and the actress bonnie langford worked very well with colin baker perhaps but but perhaps not as much with um, Sylvester McCoy. What do you think of that? Uh, I think she works quite well with McCoy in the the short time she had with him in this story. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I quite I quite liked Mel's character in this. Yeah, um, no, I don't relate to that at all. All right, no, no, it's it's interesting because and and I know that you know within fandom she's not. Um, regarded as one of the best companions and i think that goes into what we were talking about before is she doesn't really have uh, an introduction we she's brought into the series as she will be a future companion to the doctor mm. the doctor then leaves with her we don't have any introduction there f- mm. with her then with the whole situation of recasting the doctor and then we're just thrown into it yeah. she's just sort of if there she, if she is coming back for the next series i hope we get I hope they do something more substantial with her because hmm. what we've kind of learned from like the big finish stuff, like how good was she in the Pompeii story? Yeah. The Pfizer Vulcan. She was really good. Yeah. Um, you know, and Bonnie Langford is a good actress, but it's, it's like anything you can, you can give a good performance, but if the material you're given to perform uh, isn't particularly good, then it, you know, you can only go so far. And I think one of the issues yeah. is with with Mel, as I think, in terms of 
how we see her as just as a person i'm not talking about you know giving background information on her just seeing as we do i think she's really good in the terror terror of the vervoids you know she's um <clears throat> she's resourceful she's resourceful she, strong in her own yeah. way um she she loves the adventure um yeah she you know she really enjoys she's got it. quite a good scream yes she's, she's but it's 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 not overused it is here though and i think um i think this is where it becomes a bit of a problem because she um she screams a heck of a lot in this story then in the following story as much as i love paradise towers she just gets really excited about visiting a swimming pool at the top of a building it's not the most sort of mm. you know i mean i like swimming as much as but the fact that she's just fixated on visiting a bloody swimming pool is as a, as a means of driving a, a, a an action adventure story in doctor who is not particularly great um so i think she suffers from the writing and i think okay the cliffhanger to episode one where she gets trapped in one of those bubbles and you know she potentially can explode to death her screaming her head off perfectly legitimate you get that but then there's moments later on in the story where she comes across a tetrap. She screams, fixate, you know, stuck to the spot, you know, stands there yeah. screaming, then immediately turns, sees another tetrap, stands there screaming. There's another bit, and then later on in the story, she, there's a bit where a tetrap comes along and she, she just stands there, screams. And it's just, where's that? Uh, it's it's not great and so it's not yeah bonnie nothing towards bonnie langford she she plays what she was given very well what the material she was given unfortunately wasn't particularly great in those moments later on in episode three and episode four there's bits you know where she's standing up to the rani uh, you know i think you know those scenes benefit her character very well mm -hmm. you know and she's talking about you know she, you know she hasn't reckoned on the doctor's character. The doctor had, you know, the, she's, you know, the doc yeah. doctor's uh, got humanity and she's like, oh, you're almost sentimental, sentimental as him is, he is, get on you with your work. You know, those scenes are good. So again, it goes back to that point of going, that there are moments in the story which are good and there are moments which benefit the characters particularly well, but then there are moments which just, you know, massively detract from them. So it's sort of, for every for everything that the story gives it, it always takes something away from them mm. um speaking of moments with mel she mm. is reunited with the doctor mm. uh, is this an episode two e or is it an yeah i believe so yes or it is episode, episode two one. yeah yeah um and she hasn't because she's been unconscious since the start of the episode she hasn't seen the seventh doctor yet mm -hmm. um so when she's by the time she's reunited with him the doctor's already been kind of deceived by the ronnie and he believes the ronnie is mel and he believes mel to be in the ronnie impersonating mel yeah so we we have a moment where they check each, each other's pulse mm -hmm. um which kind of reassures them that uh they are who they say they are mm -hmm. um and so mel kind of accepts that and she, i guess she hasn't got any concept of regeneration but she but after this she kind of takes it on board 
Well, she actually says well to... she actually says when when the doctor's checking her pulse, she says, "I know all about regeneration." Oh, does she? Yeah, right, okay. she has that line. Maybe the sixth doctor explained regeneration to her at some point, and maybe yeah. <clears throat> and she, and she was on like the the outpost in um... trial. Trial, yeah. yeah so yeah. she's been around a lot of time lords, mm-hmm. and who who knows what she's been briefed on or what she's been through. Yeah, yeah, and obviously the the whole thing with regards to who the Valyard is. Oh yeah, yeah, that yeah, and true. she's there, she's there when 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 that moment is revealed. <gasps> it's a it's a it's a great moment. Um, we really need to review Trial of the Time Lord at some point. Um, yes, sooner rather than later, in, hopefully in one episode. <laughs> yeah, eight. Hey. 15 and a half hour podcast dedicated to, yeah, I'm sure lots of people will be looking forward to that. Um, but yeah. No, I, I, you, you know, if we did one part, one part, an episode, hmm. would we, could we do it in a year? <laughs> Depending on our, how we schedule it, but potentially, because how many is it? It's 14 so episodes. Is it 12? Tw- no, is it 12 episodes? No, no, it's 14. 14. If we did one one episode every other week. <laughs> That's 24, 28 episodes. Mm-hmm. If, but we might do one a month. <laughs> so that's only. <laughs> we will spend the rest of our lives reviewing Trial of a Time Lord. <laughs> oh, great. Um, yeah. Something to look forward to. But yeah, uh, that scene where, they, where they're introduced, uh, I quite like that, actually. I think it's a good mm. scene. Yeah. Um, so it does have a bit of a dark turn earlier on when the the girl dies in that big ball thing. Mm. We have a skeleton on the floor. Um, the doctor and the Ronnie pass it at some point, and the doctor kind of remarks that it's humanoid with a bit of reptilian mm. in it. Um, and it's basically a human skeleton with a bit of a Mohican <laughs> peak on the head. They tried, Rob. It looks, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so it turns out this girl was the daughter of that bloke, Bayos. Yes, uh, yes, and also, uh, and that woman was her mother as well. <laughs> that that, <laughs> wo- <laughs> that woman. Yes, um, um, I can't remember the character's name actually. It, um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, because San is the name of the daughter. I, no, it's not Faroon. Right, okay. And obviously she is grieving mm-hmm. and she's crying, but she's also very composed. Do you put this down to bizarre acting or just kind of recursion, kind of weird dealing with stuff? <laughs> I think I don't think it was weird acting. I thought I thought it was I thought this was again, I thought this was quite a nice moment that that Well, it is, but I mean when you when your kid's dead yeah, she is. She is very composed, isn't she? Fit for that. I mean, yeah. obviously, we we do see t- we do see her crying. Um, yeah. But, but but then again, the dad he he doesn't shed a bloody tear, does he? Heartless like he, he's like you know when the Ronnie goes, we can get back to back to normal. And she's like, yeah, but my daughter's dead. <laughs> is it? Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. And the funny thing is, she actually says normal Bayos without son. Um, yeah, it's 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 interesting the the characterizations they give with yeah. her because clearly she's very. I guess yeah. they're just very laid back people. Yeah, <laughs> but too laid back. <laughs> but then I, I think it would be a bit odd. I think a Doctor Who at this point, but certainly in this story, if you had uh, Faroon breathing like her mother really would. I mean, just being a 
you know, th- just being so utterly distraught. She's gone, wow, this this story's a, a real backlash of just really camp nonsense. And then we've got this. Um, I think for the type of story that it is, I think it's, you know, I think it's, I think it's pitched well. But again, Rob, I totally get the point that you, yeah, it makes, <laughs> um, she, yeah, she is very composed given, given what she's had to, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So what else have we got in this story? Well, uh, actually, one thing I was going to say, because we, we mentioned it before, but uh, it does have some some cracking good lines. Um, <laughs> so, Ralph, you know how I mentioned before that there was one line in particular, which as I, when I, I think was, I think I was eight when I first watched this. Um, there was one line in particular, I, as an eight-year-old, I thought was absolutely hysterical. I kept on rewinding it, just laughing my head off. Do you know what line that may have been? Well... From mine is a rock that talks. <laughs> was that yours? No. No, 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 that wasn't. But yeah, yeah, it's just it's just so bizarre. <laughs> that was... That's a tu- yeah, because what is it? That's a turn up for a bo- for the books. A rock turn- that yeah. talks. <laughs> <laughs> and he's saying it with such bizarre composure and, and just intently looking at this rock. Like this is amazing. <laughs> yeah. No. Okay, so let's 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 have a little thing. Okay. What other lines have we got? Um, we've got his very creepy. I'll grow on you, Mel. I'll grow on you. Uh, okay, now the story ends though. So <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't think that's a favorite of yours as a kid. No. Uh, I don't know. It was. I have got. Uh, it's 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 not my favorite now. There's another line in this. You you do, you do have to really listen to hear it, but anyway, as a as a kid, it was. Don't be jiffy. Absence makes the nose grow longer. Okay. <laughs> as a kid, I thought that was absolutely hysterical. <laughs> don't know why, but I did. <laughs> I mean, that whole scene where um, the doctor's been changing his costume and everything like that, and. Uh, in fact, really, what makes it <laughs> really what makes it funny is is the Ronnie's reaction. Where where he, so you got the doctor who goes, "Don't be jiffy." Absence makes the nose grow longer. Walks off. And just got the Ronnie going, <laughs> almost looking to camera, just going cretin, <laughs> and then storms off. <laughs> it's great. Oh <laughs> uh, no! Uh, what? <laughs> One of my favourite lines is, um, it's the bit towards the end when the the doctor's um, uh, being put in that cabinet thing, and so that that cerebral mass, the brain, and so all these geniuses, including the doctor, is having a conversation, and the doctor's just sort of like interjecting and just trying to make the Rani's plan fail by just spouting nonsense, and they're talking about mass uh, and how that increases. And then the doctor has this line, which was like, so what you're saying is uh, the faster a fat man runs, the fatter he'll get. Uh, which I quite like. I think that's, I quite like that line. Hmm. Any others that stand out for you? Uh, no, I wish I'd wrote them all down. What's the line? It's, la- qu- yeah. it's hard to quote him when he's also misquoting stuff. Yeah, and uh, what's that last one? Is uh Time and man meets the snowman. Oh yeah, <laughs> I think they were pushing it with that oh, one. He... Yeah, 
waits for no man who's waiting i'm ready um yeah there's got to be some other uh, some other ones but yeah do you want to talk about the wardrobe scene yes we can do yeah yeah um so him and the ronnie go back to the tardis to pick out his outfit Mm -hmm. um it's interesting that the ronnie was so influential on what he would wear as well (laughs) yeah yeah um so he's wearing what is it like a soldier's outfit uh a graduate uh, gown and hat oh yeah, yeah and the cap and then he goes through some some old outfits yes so he is in kind of tom baker's season 18 with a red yeah yeah then and he... then has the pun of going old hat and he takes the hat off <laughs> he does yeah then we go to John Pertwee. Is it? Is it? Yeah. Not not frilled. No. Not frilled, yeah. Mm. Then we go to... Is it Peter Davison next? Yes, yeah. Okay. And after this... Then after this, I think he... he um... Oh, is it the Yeti coat? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's the... Uh... Yeah, it's uh, Troughton's coat. And then he flashes the Rani his costume. And she's like, that's the one, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, what do you think of McCoy's costume? Well, anything's a lot more subtle than Colin Baker's. <laughs> Maybe they were playing the long game. Maybe we'll, we'll do something dreadful. And then whatever we do after this won't seem as dreadful. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I, I don't mind the question marks. I know we've had them since. Um, oh, is it actually since um, season eighteen? Season eighteen, yeah, yeah. On 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 the um on the shirt, yeah. That that was fine. We've had it. That that followed through Peter Davison, yeah. Yes. Um, so this is very a lot more prominent. It's all over. This his jumper, mm. his umbrella. Uh, we don't have the umbrella here, do we? No, no it's no. Uh, it took him it's, a while um, to, to make it. Um, he doesn't get that until Delta on the Bannerman. Okay, but um, I didn't mind it. Um, I even like the idea of his calling card as well. Our remembrance. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm fine with the question marks. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I really like uh, the costume. I like the, it has a sort of like a nineteen thirties look to it, which I like. Mm. Um, I think I don't mind the the question mark pullover. I think the I think the costume would have been better without it. To be honest, I do like the question mark umbrella when it later uh, comes. I think that's a bit more of a. Uh, I think that's more of a witty idea, of like if you want to incorporate a question mark into the costume. I think the way that they subsequently do it with the umbrella yeah. i think is the way to do it um if you want to add more mystery to the character though i think it's maybe the wrong way to oh do yeah it. completely it's ridiculous <laughs> it's far too on the nose it's not subtle at all um but i think uh i mean i like mccoy's uh costume but um uh yeah i think uh, i think it would have been better if they didn't have the <laughs> didn't have the question marks uh it is it is a bit much but the the odd thing, the oddest thing about this version of the costume is that the Doctor wears his braces over the jumper. Ah. Uh-huh. Which he only he only does that in this story. 
uh, and then when when we have the McCoy hologram in Power of the Doctor, the uh, Jodie Whittaker's last story. Yeah. He's he 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 has the braces over his jumper and that. Do you think that's a callback to this? I think so. Yeah, but but why? He's talking to Ace. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, it's a, it's a, I th- I find that more of a of an odd thing. Why is he wearing braces over his jumper? <laughs> How odd. But uh, but yeah. Anyway, I, I like the costume. In terms of the the scene of him, of him of of him actually choosing it so what do you think uh no i I think it's just a callback to older scenes and um we've already had the humor of robot yes tom baker i think that was fantastic like i can't help but laugh when he's dressed like a viking (laughs) the way the camera just pans on him yeah and and the brigadier's reaction and then just going you think i might <laughs> you think you you think i might attract attention it's just possible um i mean if if the brigadier had said that's that's the one <laughs> do you think it would have stuck yes until maybe the doctor regained his sanity or something but um yeah i think yeah i, d- I, I don't think i don't think the humor worked i think hmm. um in retrospect, we've had that kind of thing before. And it was done and much better. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, and especially going back through so many classic outfits, it's relying too much on that nostalgia, maybe? Yeah, I think so. It's, I mean, at least with the, when they were doing a sort of a comedy thing with Robot, I think one, it was much, I think it was much more witty. Um, it was genuinely funny. But you get a mixture of different styles and costumes and it's it's not you know we don't see him wear um like hartnell's costume or troughton's costume or something yeah and the clown was a bit much in robot but i I, but i do love that as well when he's kind of maiming his cry as well (laughs) Uh. (laughs) yes yeah yeah it is you know it is really funny uh and the funny thing is that that uh that that costume's much better than what Colin Baker was subsequently given. Oh, yeah. Poor man. But um, yeah, but this I th- I just think it's um, it's not it's not as it's not as funny as I say that the yes. thing that that's funny about the scene is at the end of absence just makes the nose yeah. grow longer, cretin, and then storms off. Yeah, you know th- that. But the um, actual scene itself, yeah, I don't think it's don't think it's great. Yeah. Now, well, while, while we're in the the wardrobe, um, the doctors looked in the mirror. And then he kind of something clicks, hmm. and he he turns he turns to the Ronnie, and we have, um, yeah, Kate O'Mara is deep faked with Bonnie Langford's face, <laughs> <laughs> which is a weird weird shot, because it's like it, this tiny meek little face on Kate O'Mara's jawline. <laughs> it just doesn't work. It's it doesn't work. Not proportionate. It do, it's not, and it just. It, even though it is Bonnie Langford's face, it doesn't look like Bonnie Langford. It's really weird. It's bizarre. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a peculiar one. Mm. Um, sorry, Rob. I think for me, I think I've pretty much talked about anything. Is there any is there any points that you wanted to raise with the time on the Ronnie? 
Um, no, I don't think so. Obviously, there was a well. Yes, actually. Okay. We have we haven't we haven't talked about the Ronnie's master plan. So she's oh. she's she's here, uh, and obviously there's this big brain, and there's a there's this there's this idea that she's going to use this. I can't even explain the whole method of it. Right, okay, right, hang, right, okay. So what to... it is is that we have this meteorite made of strange matter. Now, the funny thing is, right, when I was a kid, I thought that was so lazy. I thought, strange matter, and they've named it strange matter. It turns yeah. out, actually, that Pip and Jane Baker had actually done their scientific research, and strange matter is actually a thing and it is called strange matter but as a kid it's i didn't diff- different to dark matter yes dark energy yeah yeah so it it, it it all right okay that's that's interesting because it seems a bit strange that something <laughs> would have such a heavy mass yeah no apparently it is a real thing and it was called strange matter so the idea is that uh, strange matter uh, can be the only thing which can um, make it explode is strange matter itself um, so what the Rani is trying to do is find a lightweight substitute of strange matter, uh, which would be packed into this rocket, which would be launched at this meteorite uh, to make it explode. And this meteorite is uh, sort of going through the solstice on the planet Lacertia. Apparently exploding this meteorite would uh, release a bunch of crotons was it uh crotons which are particles of time the chronons chronons yes what did i say crotons yeah sorry chronons which are particles of time and that would uh react that would fill the entire atmosphere of lacertia we would react with the giant brain and therefore turn the planet into a time manipulator yeah essentially this big time brain planet thing (laughs) yes (laughs) but um so this is quite a plan. <laughs> yes. Um, not not just the the means to get from A to B. It's like if she had succeeded, um, that's quite it's quite a dangerous outcome. Yeah. Yeah. Because she could change change the flow of time or whatever. Yeah. So. Um... One of the things that she mentions is that she would go back to Earth and take the and go back to. Um... I mean, she has a TARDIS, so this whole plan seems a bit redundant as well. Yeah, yeah, because the idea is that she would go back and make sure that the dinosaurs don't go extinct. But I suppose having a giant time manipulator would make that easier. But as you yeah. say, Rob, she does have a TARDIS. Yeah. Yeah. Why not just go back, save Adric, avert the dinosaur's death? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. The whole, like, like I say, the 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 whole master plan seems seems a bit redundant when she she already has. But even then, I've machine. I've never understood. So she, in order for her to come up with a lightweight substitute for strange matter, she's kidnapped all these geniuses. To help her come up with this. I forgot about that. Oh my god, I had Einstein in the, the, in the cupboard. Yeah, the thing is though, okay, from, from our perspective, because historically speaking, Einstein is a relatively his, uh, recent historical figure. and Relatively. Yeah, relatively. Hey! Um, uh, 
and you know we still talk about uh the general theory of relativity and so on and we recognize him as a genius so okay she kidnaps einstein i can kind of get that she kidnaps louis pasteur uh, right okay she kidnaps hypatia now okay i get it hypatia during the you know at the, at the time she was a genius mathematician but we're talking about the time of oh, i've forgotten precisely when she was alive but for argument's sakes i think she predates cleopatra but anyway well, yeah Cleop- cleopatra is fairly recent in history yeah yeah she, uh, yeah she's closer to, to, to us in time than the building of the pyramids which is insane that's how old the pyramids of giza are um yeah but it, it, it's also it's also at the same time it's it's hard to when 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 was cleopatra because you kind of think of the romans but then we have the emergence of the roman empire quite early on to quite late in history um yes yeah, yeah. so yeah uh, um but, yeah, anyway. but but anyway the, the the point that i was making was that you know she kidnaps okay this this genius math genius mathematician but given the time that hypatia was alive Surely someone much more recent would have a much better, under, you know, a, a genius mathematician now would understand far more about the necessary maths needed than Hypatia would. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it just goes to show that she was capable of extracting these people from history. Mm-hmm. Um, people who are important to the flow of time, I'm guessing. <laughs> and they're all from Earth. Yeah, they're all from Earth, apart from the Doctor. Mm. And... Uh, yeah, surely this is the kind of damage that she's capable of. Why does she need to make the time brain planet thing? I know, yeah. So the uh, so so what we're establishing is the plot of the actual story doesn't make any sense. It doesn't. It's a lot of effort to go through. Mm. Mm. Um, but all these people go home. Do we? Um, we assume all these people were put back in the proper time and place. Mm-hmm remembering these events <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> like uh, no doubt we're going to get an einstein episode at some point is he going to talk about the stuff with the rock <laughs> <laughs> you know what roberts yeah you're right we probably will have an einstein episode at some point but yeah i don't think tam and the rani will be mentioned yeah uh, oh well but we do we do get it going off it imagine if he doesn't talk about it uh, <laughs> <laughs> fandom's gonna kick yeah off. we will go ballistic <laughs> you bring einstein back and he do well they, they could actually go yeah but it was before the events of time and the rani okay it was actually uh, when he so th- yeah. then then we'll have to reevaluate it like so so he knew the doctor <laughs> when he met him in time and the rani <laughs> Yeah, that's why he's able to sort of have a have a, a good understanding of what the TARDIS yeah. console is. But of course, the Doctor goes, "I'll explain later." It's all a relative. Yeah, great. Yeah. <laughs> so, Rob, anything else? Nah. <laughs> great. Um, right. So, before we give our own ranking of the story, uh, oh yeah, got some. Uh, we've got our poll on our website. Yeah. So um, we have a brilliant website, cloisterbellpodcast.com, which is our little hub for all things Cloisterbell. Mm-hmm. We run a polling station there for each episode. And you can go 
vote for the episode, rate it good, average or bad. And you can also leave your feedback in the comments. Tell us what you thought of the story. Um, in some cases, you might want to leave your feedback on social media or drop us an email, feedback at cloisterbellpodcast.com. Um, so have you got some of the, the feedback there, Lee? Uh, or do we do the poll results first? It's been, I'm a bit rusty here. <laughs> we've, been, we've been off air for a few <laughs> weeks. I know, it's insane. Um, right, I'm going to uh, read the, the feedback first. Um, I'll have a look on the socials while you're doing that. Great, thanks, Rob. So, uh, Mike Clark has got in contact and he has said, I don't mind it, it looks good and the story's okay. Having a decent cast helps. But from reading Script Doctor by Andrew Cartmel, he did not have a good working relationship with Pip and Jane Baker. I think he felt the story was old-fashioned and not in keeping with his new vision, vision for the show. Thanks, Mike. Uh, yes, you're right. Um, I haven't read that book, but I have um, seen Andrew Cartmel being interviewed uh, where he's talking about this story. And by the time he'd come on as script editor, the story had been pretty much finished. He did try to shape it in some sort of direction, um, but yeah, I think um, I think Pip and Jane Baker weren't particularly keen on on the suggestions that he that he had. So yeah, I don't think I think you're right. I don't think it was a particularly uh, strong relationship there. But thanks for that, Mike. And I yeah. agree with you. I think uh, well, the, I, would... I think the story does look uh, does look good. Yeah, it does. I don't know what we've been complaining about all these years. Uh, so, Ian Martin from All the Time in Space had messaged about the story. He'd said, it's a grower, this one. Is, is that an, in reference to I'll grow on you? Mm, I don't know. <laughs> um, in 1987, I thought it was absolute bum slurry. In 2024, we can agree it was merely the weakest story of season 24 but not without its moments of entertainment. That's definitely true. Yeah, it's, it is definitely entertaining. I don't think it's the worst story in season 24, personally. But no, the, thanks for that. Mm. Um, James has said, if it wasn't for all the behind-the-scenes things that was going on with Colin Baker, I would absolutely love this episode. However, it doesn't ruin the episode, and I do love so much about the story. McCoy starts off strong, and the Rani is always fun. Yeah, you're right. The Rani is always fun. Actually, well, firstly, thanks, James. Um, one thing, I, uh, f but that reminds me, there was something I wanted to ask you, Rob, which I forgot about before. Because originally this was written as writing Colin Baker out as opposed to introducing us to Sylvester McCoy. So the story would have had it where, you know, at the end of the story, Baeus, um stays in the base and makes sure that the Tetraps don't go and the plan goes oh, goes yes. ahead and then everything explodes. That would have been the doctor, and that would have what—that's what would have triggered the regeneration. Okay. All right. Do you think, th had this been Colin Baker's final story, then, and having that as the regeneration, do you think that would have made it better in any way? It it would have. It I would have loved something like that for Colin Baker's like arc, mm. like he dies for a purpose. Yeah, that would have been good. Yeah. I think it it may not have been the you know the best last story that a doctor had, but I think it I think that would have been a lot better actually. Uh, yeah, you would have went out with a lot more dignity. I thought you were going to say character. you would have went out with a bang. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Tom has said, average mostly for the nostalgia value. Mel is okay when she's not screaming. 
And she screams. When is she not screaming? Yeah. <laughs> I think there's probably thirty seconds worth in the uh, in the story when she's not screaming. Yeah. yeah. Someone should make a supercut of all the screams. <laughs> Uh, Michael Storm has said it's a bit of a silly story with some truly atrocious dialogue however there are some really good visual effects such as the killer spheres and daft as it is the Rani impersonating Mel is very entertaining unfortunately most of the guest characters have the personality of a 1980s primary school dinner do you think that's the do you think that's the same as 1990s primary school dinner Rob yes either way it's pretty bad anyway um it is worth noting that the newly regenerated Doctor doesn't have any post-regeneration trauma. He's on form pretty much as soon as he wakes up. All his trauma is caused by being drugged by the Rani. Yeah, that's a good point. Thanks for that, Michael. Yeah. Okay, so the polls. The poll result. Oh, right, okay. Okay, so. Um, sort of interesting, really. I'm really curious. Yeah, okay, so. 30%... Have given it bad. Thirty percent right. have also given it average. Forty percent have given it good. All right, that's a close one. Mm. Uh-huh. So, in terms of you, Rob, how would you rank this story? So when I when I finally put this episode on a good few weeks ago, I was watching <clears> it and it, there was a, there was a moment, a shady moment where I thought, you know what, I'm going to rate this a good. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, you know, I um, I come to my senses and evaluate it more sensibly. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, maybe that's because it's one of those kind of... Th- there's, 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 there's always, like, stories in Doctor Who that are very standout. Mm. And they, all, they almost become, like, hallmarks of these eras. Um... So to me, Time and the Rani um, is as imperfect as it, as it is. It's this kind of perfect little gem that's out there. <laughs> um, so I, it's one of those things that I, I wouldn't like to rate, um, but I, I wouldn't because I wouldn't want to just hate on it because there's a lot I like about mm. it. Uh, but I guess so. I guess in that respect, I'm gonna I'm gonna stay neutral. But that's also based on like my genuine feelings towards it like there is a lot to love there's a lot that's not so great mm-hmm. um <clears throat> what i do love uh I, I, maybe um there could have been more potential with sylvester's uh performance and dialogue but what we got of him i do love mm-hmm. all these little um he kind of wrongly paraphrases all these sayings um it was nice we got all these interactions with him and Kate O'Mara. Mm-hmm. Um, her performance, even though they made her dress up as Mel, <laughs> I, I think her performance was great. And I remember thinking in the early 2000s, mid-2000s, you know, she was still acting, doing dramas and stuff. And I remember thinking, like, I think she was just, I was just watching it on Paul O'Grady one day and I'm thinking, well, Doctor Who's on. Why are they not bringing her back? She's like this amazing actor. Mm. Uh, so yeah, she's always good, and I've I've always liked Mel. So th- there's not much that I really hate about this. And while I'm not <coughs> as convinced about the Bat People, uh, I do think they're fun to watch. Mm-hmm. 
with all the googly eyes and the <laughs> big long tongues. Um. So yeah, I, I guess I rate this average. All right, okay. But but I do love it. Mm-hmm. But I wouldn't say it's perfect. No, okay. No, I get all that. Um, I rate it bad, but there's a caveat to that. It's one of those things where it's so bad, it's good. I do generally think that this is, as I say, there are things in this story which uh, I do really enjoy, I do really like. But on the whole, it's not great. It's a good bad. But it, yeah, it's it's, <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's, a, it's a good bad because it's one of those things, I don't think it's the worst Doctor Who story by a long shot. It's no. camp. It's fun. It's definitely not dull. No, before. yeah, exactly. And for me, that's the you know, there the, the are have been occasions when you've there had there are had... plenty of stories like that where you just kind of endure and oh, like, God. this is terrible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and it, I think that's the thing. It's like if if you have a Doctor Who story which is boring, that's the thing. It's just oh, yeah, yeah. You know. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> elements of this story is a bit repetitive. People just run around back and forth, but that. I definitely don't really feel that when I'm watching it. Mm. So um, it kind of flows well, even though it's a, like a four-part. Yeah, yeah, and uh, it has it has massive entertainment value. And it's as bad as, you know, ranking it bad, but... Yeah, I ha- love it or laugh at it, it's great. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> yeah. And I have watched it on several occasions, and I will definitely, more than happily, come back and re-watch it. It's, yeah. It has masses of entertainment value, and for that I love it. <laughs> So, yeah. Time of the Rani, folks. There you go. Well, the Cloister Bell did not toll for that story. <laughs> maybe maybe the next one. Yeah, maybe the next one. Which, Rob, what is our next uh, story going to be? I don't know. Like, oh, I have threw a spanner in the works because we had a plan. <clears throat> but we've also been talking on WhatsApp about, oh, we could do this and that. Where do we stand on that? Are we sticking to our typical schedule for now? yes because there's um yeah so the, our recent conversation rob i do really want to review that story uh, at some point quite soon right. well yeah sooner than later yeah okay well, we're sticking later. to the original plan yeah. um i think this is about a year and a half overdue <laughs> we did um the particular story i'm talking about is the second in a in a short series uh we did the first one with um a guest mm-hmm. nice friend of the podcast called kenny joined us to discuss the first one which was storm warning which was an eighth doctor story and i really want to get back into that and i don't want to leave it another year and a half before we get to the the subsequent one mm-hmm. uh, i really want to kind of get into a good flow of them so what we're going to listen to the second ever eighth doctor audio drama from big finish it is the sword of orion Excellent. I'm looking forward to that. Um, so, yeah, thanks, Rob. So, yes, uh, hope you all enjoyed that, uh, everybody. Um, yeah. And as Rob said, we're going to be reviewing uh, The Sword of Orion in our next podcast. Yep. Um, until then, um, you can say hello on the socials. Please do head to cloisterbellpodcast.com. Uh, yeah, so, please do. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I guess that's it. Yep. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Okay. Bye, everyone. Bye.